My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. We were told you'd never get a, a loan for a car. You only get a loan for something that's going to go off in value, which is a, a house or a property. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with founder of Investment Window, Michael Martin. We delve into his background and find out how he went from the financial sector into the property industry, what types of properties he has invested since the age of 21, where he's gathered a wealth of knowledge and experience that he shares with us. We find out about what Martin does and his job description and what his company is looking to help their clients achieve. I'm a buyer's agent for a company called Investment Window. So we're um, helping helping clients buy investment properties across, across Australia and what I bring to the table is I can help others by them learning from some mistakes which I've made along the way which we'll go into today. But yeah, but my story of been in financial markets for 20 years but I've always had a passion for property throughout that time and held um, quite a few investment properties but that's where I am now. Martin explains what a typical day in his life looks like. These days, just a lot of research to be honest and uh, dealing with, oh, not dealing but um, liaising with mortgage brokers and financial planners, um, accountants or real estate agents just trying to get the word out about what I'm doing and my story and hoping to guide clients uh, into the right investment path. These days, it's just doing a lot of networking at the moment and a lot of research on properties Australia-wide. With the impact of the pandemic that is happening around the world, we discuss the impact he can see on properties. It's only kind of really taken off in the last week or two in or worldwide, but particularly in Australia with airlines, uh, travel restrictions and whatnot. But I think it's going to play into the hands if you're a buyer You'll be able to negotiate a lot harder, I think. Um, I heard a story yesterday about a, an auction which was taking place and uh, the indicative reserve was about 1.05 and the agent told a friend of mine that they'll accept an offer pre-auction for 9.50. So sellers are a little bit nervous, so there's some discounts to be had. With the equities, equity markets taking a big hit, you might see a lot of people actually want to move into uh, property, the safety of bricks and mortar, um, something they can touch and no, it doesn't have the 30% swings like we've seen in the Australian or the worldwide stock markets the last two or three weeks. So I think I think ultimately it might benefit the, the property 
market, even though there might be a dip. We delve into Martin's background and find out about the area that he grew up in when he was a child. I'm a bit of a boring case. I grew up in southwest Sydney, which is Panania, a little suburb. I grew up there. My parents still live there. I married a local girl and I still live here. So I've lived in the same suburb my whole life. I've moved a couple of different houses, but still been in the same suburb. So nothing too crazy there. He's been living around the same area for over 20 years and we find out the biggest changes that he has seen taking place in the area. Oh, massive change in the um, past 10, 15 years especially, there wasn't one duplex in the area and now um, so many duplexes around, which is a good thing, but it, you just notice the difference on the roads. There's just so many more cars on the road, which is just a part of living in Sydney and all the councils, the government and councils, they've got their quotas where they have to increase their populations and that's just a, a part of it. So, But as being a local for my whole life, that's that's the big thing that I've noticed is just um, so many more houses or duplexes or a house which has been knocked down, duplexes put up and just so many more cars on the road. After he had finished high school, we learn about whether he decided to continue his studies or jump straight into the workforce. I started working at National Australia Bank. I was doing an accounting at TAFE. And then I worked at Concord Council for a little while in their accounts. And then uh, my neighbour helped get me a job at State Bank of New South Wales in the Treasury area, which was something that interested me. Um, when I was young, my dad used to always... He'd get home from work a bit later. So on the news after the sport, they'd have the stock market, how much it went up or down, and this was kind of before the internet. So I'd, he'd, my job every night was to write down where the all-lords ended every day and he'd put it in his notebook. So I kind of always had an interest in the stock market when I went and worked in Treasury, which was the money markets and FX and the futures. I had a lot of interest in that, so I really enjoyed that. You will learn a lot about the financial market when you're working for a bank and we delve into his experience of working that job. When I was at NAB, I was just a teller. And then when I went to State Bank, which then turned into Colonial State Bank, so I was in the foreign exchange settlements area. Bit of a funny story. I, so I was doing that and I really liked it and I was learning about foreign exchange and the trading. And then at a Christmas party, the Christmas party included the futures team, the money market and the FX. So I was only 21. I was having a good time at the party, let my hair down and then probably been a bit too loud, I guess. And the boss of the Futures team came up to me and said, oh, you'd fit in down on the trading floor. Come and see me on Monday. So I, I was like, oh, wow. And then the, the next day, because my neighbour worked with me, I said to him, oh, did, did I tell you last night that like, Kathy asked me to come down and see her on Monday on the trading floor? He went, yeah, how good is that? So anyway, I went down and worked on the trading floor for a, like, for a week as a practice and all the guys there were really nice and so I transferred from the FX settlements department onto the trading floor for, for one year before the trading floor closed and it then went all electronic. But that was kind of one of my, my goals to, that when I was younger I wanted to work on the ASX uh, trading floor but by the time I was 20 that had actually closed and I didn't even know what futures trading was back then. There was a futures trading floor where they trade the interest rate products and the SPY, so the share price index. So I got thrown in the deep end, had to learn all the hand signals and wear the coloured jacket, but that was something that I really loved and it was kind of a bit of a goal that I achieved early in my working life, so I liked it. It was bloody stressful though, let me tell you. I, I used to 
feel sick most mornings just with nerves because if you made a mistake with the wrong hand signal, like it would cost thousands of dollars. And so it was pretty high pressure. I had to learn to work in a high pressure situation. It was really good fun. Martin shares with us some more details about the hand signals and how you need to communicate on the trade floor. The pit that I was in, like it was kind of the furthest from where the booths, like Colonial State Bank, the booths where they'd get their phone orders and then they'd have to hand signal it to me in the pit like it was a good 25 metres away. So you have to really get your hand signals clear. It was kind of no point yelling out because they couldn't hear hear what you're saying. But it was some good memories. It was good fun. We find out about the jobs he has been working for the past 15 years or so. When the trading floor closed, it went just to electronic trading like it is these days. So then I went back into the office and took the phone calls like the client orders and executed them and to manage positions. And so then that was, I think, about 2000 might have been. So then the past 15 odd years, I've been doing that for various companies. So I've got retrenched a few times along the way, which is pretty standard practice in the financial markets, financial industry. Companies change direction, so collateral damage. So that's what I've been doing the last 15, 18 years. Technology is rapidly evolving year by year and Marta delves into some of the biggest changes he has noticed that advanced technology has impacted on. In the futures industry or even like the stock market industry, the main one is not as many humans are needed. <laughs> With computers now, like when was it in the early 2000s, I guess, when everyone started using Comsec to buy their shares. So prior to that, you always had to ring up to place an order. And if you fast forward to now, I reckon there's probably one in 20, one in 50 people would actually ring up to place an order. It's all done online on the online platforms. So therefore, instead of needing, say, 10 brokers, you might a company might, might only need one or two instead of 10. So if they've got 100, they might only need like 10 these days. So that's just why the industry has shrunk so much. So that's the biggest change, I'd say. Coming up after the break, we delve into Michael Martin's journey and how he got started in property. So I'd save pretty much all of my full-time job salary and my casual jobs was my spending money. So I had good savings. So by the time they bought their houses, I had saved enough to buy an investment property myself. Some advice from Martin on the importance of mitigating risk. The big lesson, well, a couple of lessons, I sold a good property to fund the bad properties and the bad properties were all in the one location. So I hadn't spread the risk at all. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. The jobs in his line of work shrunk due to the advancement of technology. But what line of work did he see his former colleagues jump into since they left? The compliance world has taken off in the past 10, 15 years where it's everything is so compliant. So I know a few of the guys who have moved into that. Yeah, so many people have just moved out into completely other different areas. Similar to myself, like I've always had a passion in property investing and been investing for 20 years. So now I'm turning a passion into a, into a job where I can help others. So I'm an example of someone who was in the industry and now moved into a separate industry. So that's pretty common, commonplace and that's what people have had to do. They've had to look for another opportunities because it's a shrinking industry. So therefore, you need to find something else. We dive into some of the influences that had guided him to jumping into the financial industry. I kind of had the interest just through tracking the All Lords 
but for doing it for my dad. I I'm not sure why that kind of I had that interest in. And when I'd write down the All Lords prices for my dad every day, they'd always show a clip, a 20 second clip of the trading floor of the people doing the hand signals and that. I just thought that was really exciting stuff. And I thought that's what I want to do. So it's kind of as simple as that. And then when my neighbor, who was a couple of years older than me, I'm still really good friends with, he actually worked on the trading floor as for free he like he approached the company uh, state back in new south about then and said can i come and work on the trading floor for free just to get some experience and then he did that and that's how he got an in into the treasury area and then that's how he he helped me get the job the influences what you ask is my neighbor and then just something as little as how i used to write down the stock market numbers every day for my dad that's how i got the interest he had been interested in property for such a long time we discuss where that passion initially came from. When I was young, I remember mum and dad, they bought a investment property up in, up the entrance, the north coast, I suppose, uh, central coast. So they'd go up there weekends every now and then as an investment property. So that was kind of planted the seed in my head. And then my brother and sister were, were two and four years older than me. So when they were like about the 23, 24, 25, they bought a house to, as they got married. And I thought, I need to be a part of this. So I was always a, a good saver. Always, like had a, well, we all worked. Dad instilled that in us. He always worked two or three jobs and told us that you had to save hard in order to buy a property. And we were told you never get a loan for a car. You only get a loan for something that's going to go up in value, which is a house or a property. So I always kind of had the idea that I'd want to do that. And then when my brother and sister bought their home, I thought I'd been saving hard and even when I had my full-time job, I kept my part-time jobs, which one of them was KFC and then I got a local pizza shop I'd deliver a couple of nights a week. So I'd save pretty much all of my full-time job salary and my casual jobs was my spending money. So I had good savings. So by the time they bought their houses, I'd saved enough to buy an investment property myself. Most of the time, the first investment property brings about the best story in an investor's career. We delve into the story behind Martin's first property. Well, there was no internet back then. I think it was 1997 I bought it when I was 21. So it was a four-bedroom villa in just the neighbouring suburb. So I went and looked. It was only 160000 so it was pretty affordable. It would be nice if that much these days. But in saying that, my full-time job, I think I was only earning 27000 So I wasn't earning a lot of money. In hindsight, I wish I bought an actual house as opposed to a villa because like land, you get more appreciation as opposed to a villa. But it was a nice, tidy four-bedroom villa which someone was already renting it. So I bought it and I'm pretty sure they stayed in it from memory. And I think it was renting two thirty a week. So interest rates were might have been 7.5% back then. So it, it pretty much paid for itself. So I could still be young and go out partying and it didn't hold me back. So, did he end up holding onto his first investment property? No, I haven't. I think maybe three or four years after that, I we got married. Um, I got married to Lisa, my beautiful wife. We bought a home in Panadia, same suburb. Because the investment property was paying for itself, we kept it as well as the family home. Two years later, the investment property had gone up, had about 60 grand equity in it. And back then, you couldn't really refinance a loan to take the equity out. You had to just sell it. Um, so I, we made the decision to sell it and put the profit into the family home to pay down the debt. Now, 
is a profit, which is good, but um, I didn't stick to the plan. Like I held it for five years. It went up, but a property cycle is 10 to 12 years. And if I had it today, it'd be worth about 850000 So I'd be sitting on about, and it'd be getting like 700 a week rent. So I'd, a big regret that I've got that, that we sold it as early as we did. Um, but we, we had the right intentions and we thought we were doing the right thing all the time, but uh, hindsight's a wonderful thing. We gain a little bit of a better understanding of Martin's property portfolio and find out just how many properties he has invested over the last 20 years. We've bought and sold our family home a couple of times, moved, <laughs> moved to different parts of the same suburb. <laughs> Basically, after we sold the villa and put the money we made on that on the family home, a couple of years later, realized, ah, oh, damn, made the mistake. So we thought we need to get back into property and we went to, I got my wife on board and we went to a few seminars and we bought a property off the plan in Brisbane and I think it might have been about 290000 just only 10 k's out of Brisbane so it was a good location. Then the next year, I thought, okay, we're, this is going good. So saw an ad in the paper. This is kind of in that was only just starting to take off so you'd still buy the paper every day and there was some ad about investment properties so some slick salesman came out and we bought a duplex in an outer suburb of Townsville, so a new development in Townsville. And then, so we had the two investment properties then, feeling pretty good. Then the next year, this slick salesman gives us a call, says, how about I come out and see you, this new opportunity. Did the sales job to try to get us to buy another one in Townsville, or this outer Townsville suburb. And I thought, yep, let's buy two, actually. So, so we bought both sides of the duplex in this um, outer suburb of Townsville. So now we had essentially three duplexes in Townsville and one in Brisbane. So this was over a two or three year period. And back then, all the hype was about negative gearing. So get the depreciation benefits, you have to buy brand new. And we got suckered into that. And it's a good strategy. I shouldn't probably say suck it in, but we followed that. So we're holding four properties. We thought we're on track. Then 2008 came and GFC interest rates, just before the GFC hit, interest rates had crept back up to the high sevens. We had three young kids at that stage and then I got retrenched in the GFC. So we had three young kids. My wife was working part-time and took a couple of months to get a new job. So we're starting to feel the strain of um, the properties because they weren't paying for themselves. Then eventually when I did get a job, I had to take a pay cut as a lot of people had to do back then just to get a job and in particular the Townsville properties were a bit of a drain. They were were starting to lose uh, the tenants. They were probably only tenanted maybe 70% of the time. It was what I kind of realised, not at the time, but years later. It was a new development. The property spruker had sold these properties to people like myself, all from Sydney and Melbourne, get sold the dream of a property up in North Queensland and realise now that the only guys that are making the money are the developers the builders and the salesmen. So there's a lot of properties that are sold to investors, which drives the rent down. I think the only person who made money was the salesman. We probably bought him a couple of cars over the <laughs> a couple of years there. We hear about what Martin identifies as his worst investing moment throughout his fast experience. Well, there's a few lessons. Buying too many in the one location, so not diversifying, is a big lesson, I think. And people like myself in the past fell into that trap and I'm sure that there's Plenty of listeners who have done the same thing. What a big thing I did wrong. The Brisbane property had 
gone. It has been some growth in the four years that we'd held it. And because the Townsville properties were causing us some stress with not being rented out as much, I made the stupid decision to actually sell the good property in Brisbane because that was sitting on about a hundred grand profit. So then I could use that hundred grand to relieve some financial pressure. But I still had the Townsville properties which were not rented out as much and when they were rent when I would get a tenant, it would be at a lower amount because economy had kind of hit the fan and it just wasn't a good time. And all three Townsville properties, like they were all in the one essentially like a mine in an army town up there where like the concentration it's too concentrated on one industry so the big lesson well a couple of lessons i sold a good property to fund the bad properties and the bad properties were all in the one location so i hadn't spread the risk at all yeah a couple of yeah bad bad bad, bad lessons there well good good lessons for, for people who haven't made the mistake so that they don't make the mistake so it really silly when i think back about it it's just such a bad decision but that's and like even if like there are three Townsville properties, if only one of them was in Townsville and the other two were located elsewhere, then I wouldn't have been under the same stress because the other locations might have been better locations with lower vacancy rates. So you, you just never know. But well, kind of you don't know, but I do know that not to put all your eggs in one basket, that's for sure. So, inspired by Michael Martin's property journey and his amazing advice, we'll keep the conversation going in a future episode of Property Investory. We will discuss his strategy. We're going to hit the, hit the property market pretty aggressively <laughs> this year and what I'm going to do to be accountable, um, I'm going to be putting the portfolio on my website so that um, anyone can, can see what we're doing. Some advice that he received that he still lives by. My parents instilled a strong hard work ethic and um, if you don't work hard, you, you don't go forward. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.